Coming up this hour, it's Canada's birthday. It's also Bobby Bonilla Day. And later we're going to talk about the difference between debate and dialogue. That and more is coming up on The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole bunch of places. Almost, almost too many. Like, we're trying too hard, which is very possible. But I'm going to tell you about a few of them. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. We have uh, some heated dialogue happening on a few of those right now, don't we, Brian? Yes, we do. And uh, I think you embrace kind of the tense debate more than I do. So sometimes I click on it. I'm like, nope, clicking off. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen you interact on our Facebook page before. <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid point. Believe me. <laughs> like, I'm going to go play wiffle ball. I'll see you guys later. Anyway, <laughs> you can uh, weigh in there and we'll talk probably a little later this week about some articles that were shared and some comments that were made on our Facebook page. You can also send us a message. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Plus we're on Instagram and Twitter at common good talk. And I want to celebrate today is really two important days. It's probably yes. A thousand other holidays is probably like vegetarian lasagna day or something. I don't know. But two days in particular, and I know one especially you'll be excited about, Brian. So why don't you tell us about that first one? Yeah, today, uh, as every Mets fan knows, and I've shared, I shared it yesterday that I'm a New York Mets fan. uh, Mm -hmm. And today is Bobby Bonilla Day. And you might be like, I don't feel like, hey, I'm a baseball fan. Bobby Bonilla played a long time ago. Oh, absolutely. Yes, he did. So years ago. Uh, my team, the New York Mets, signed Bobby Bonilla, and uh, they decided that they would pay him $1.19 million uh, for every July 1st from 2011 through 2035. And uh, it pays out very well for him because in 2000, they agreed to buy out the remaining $5.9 million of his uh, of his contract. And then with all the interest, this is what he gets every year. And so smart move by him, uh, smart move by his agent, but actually it also worked out well for the Mets because they were able to use that money to go get a pitcher who helped him to the world series. So happy Bobby Bonilla day. But honestly, it's uh, I think I got two or three texts today from people who know I'm a Mets fan, <laughs> wishing me a happy Bobby Bonilla day. <laughs> is, is there any part of you that wonders how in the world this ever became a thing? You know what? When you know the Mets ownership, this is not a surprise. They like to punt things down, uh, especially when this happened. This isn't kind of in the weeds of the Mets uh, ownership that uh, uh, at the time the Mets ownership was invested very heavily with a man by the name of Bertie Madoff. Uh, and uh, a lot of what they thought was the money they had went away. If you might remember Bernie Madoff being the uh, kind of like uh, the pyramid scheme guy who cost people millions upon millions of dollars. And so uh, the, the Will Ponds, who are the Mets owners, decided to punt this money down the road instead of giving Bonilla $5.9 million at once. And good for Bonilla. That turns out to be a lot more money than $5.9 million. Uh, and think about that. If you didn't trust yourself to save and stuff, knowing that you're going to get almost $1.2 million <laughs> once a year on July 1st for doing nothing, uh, that's, a, that's a win by Bobby Bonilla right there. This is a lot of uh, softball to start the show off, but I'm wondering, Brian, how would you spend an annual $1.2 million check? Wow. I That is a wonderful question. I am actually pretty stingy, so I would probably save a lot of it. Uh, I would... Uh, 
that's even really hard to think. Like right now, I don't even know how I would spell, spend like $1,200. But yeah, I'd probably uh, <laughs> take a nice vacation every year. Uh, I would set aside a good amount of the money. Be like every July 1st, we're going to get that money. and We're going to go take a nice vacation. I, I think so. How about you? What would you do with one? I mean, I would give it to charity. Was that what I was supposed to sure, say? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I would uh, fill a vault with gold coins and swim through it Scrooge McDuck style. That's what I would do. <laughs> Oh, that's really funny. Also, uh, there's this list in this article. There's this list in this article of the number of baseball players who get deferred payments like this. Like Manny Ramirez is going to get $24.2 million total from the Red Sox, but it gets paid out through 2026. So these that's guys wild. just keep getting paid deferred money. Bruce Souter signed a deal in 1985 with deferred money. He was to be paid $750,000 per year by the Braves for 30 years after he retired. <laughs> like, Holy cow. Oh, yeah. There's good wisdom there. Well, and a lot of these names I'm not as familiar with, but I also did not realize how common this was. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But uh, Bobby Bonilla is the uh, poster child for it. Well, partially because it's the Mets and partially yeah. because uh, that his tenure with the Mets didn't go very well. Uh, and the Mets tend to be kind of cheap. So every year they'll, they'll list where he would rank right now on yeah. their, uh, salary list and it's uh, pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I want to make sure to also give proper credit and credence and respect to uh, America's top hat, Canada. It is Canada's, what do you call it? Birthday? Yeah, let's go with birthday. And I have another article that's already on our Facebook page. Brian, I'll give you a second to find a couple of your favorites, but here are some of my favorite Canada fun facts. One, it's the second largest country in the world right after Russia, which I did not know. It's also the world's most educated country. Over half its residents have college degrees. Canada's Hmm. lowest recorded temperature in 1947. You want to guess what it was? Are we Celsius or Fahrenheit here? You can guess either, Brian. Okay. I am going to go with a uh, negative uh, 57 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Negative 81.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That's cold. That's cold. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably my favorite is uh, many of you are familiar with the Journey song and the lyric born and raised in South Detroit. There is no South Detroit. That's Canada. That's what's south of Detroit right there. Many people don't realize that we would frequent Canada a lot as children for reasons I probably shouldn't mention on the air. But (laughs) uh, I've been to Canada a lot and have a lot of affection for Canada. You have a, a couple of minutes, Brian. What were some of your favorite fun facts there? So this one makes no sense to me, but I find it hilarious. It says. Canada's official phone number is one eight hundred O Canada. So if you dial that number, which I suppose we can do, who's picking up? <laughs> is my question. Like, what are you actually calling there? Yeah, I think the Czar of Canada answered. I think that's how that happened. <laughs> like the President of Canada's like, hello, hey, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for calling. <laughs> uh, in twenty nineteen, the population of Canada was thirty seven point five nine million people. Uh, this one, probably not a surprise. This, uh, the snowmobile was invented in Canada, as was the game of basketball. James Naismith came from Canada. Hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so these, the coldest temperature ever. There it is. There's the one you read. West Edmonton Mall, once the largest in the world, still is home to the largest indoor amusement park. So there you go. You got that going for him. Uh, <laughs> and I was actually, I don't. See, it's like second nature to you. It really confuses me that Canada is south of Detroit. That confuses me so much because in your mind, Canada is north of us. 
it's like a straight line, but it's completely not. So you said you used to go to Canada on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Um, That's wild. Okay. My wife and I (laughs) once went on a, uh, we did once before we had children, we went on a week's vacation. We just decided, let's just go to Toronto. We just chose Toronto for no reason because we're like, where can we drive to? No kidding. And had a blast. Toronto was wonderful. So I'm pro Canada. So happy birthday or anniversary or whatever it is. Happy birthday, Canada. (laughs) Also, just as a little bit of a teaser, and I can't really disclose more information than what I'm about to say, but uh, we would regularly go to Canada for a few things. Five pin bowling, which is amazing. There was a place there that had uh, five cent chicken wings, which at the time was five cents Canadian, which was about three cents American. Uh, Nice. (laughs) Um, I've had a gun drawn on me at the Canadian border. Not surprising. Um, <laughs> like I, you, you didn't even bat an eye. You're like, sure, why not? That makes sure, perfect sure. sense. I, I'll, I should stop. I should stop the stories there. We got other things to get to, but uh, happy Canada Day, happy Bobby Bonilla Day. It's a whole bunch of other weird days. It's not Vegetarian Lasagna Day, but you can find uh, those articles and more on our Facebook page. Coming up next from the Gospel Coalition, though, four reasons to wear a mask, even if you hate it. That's coming up next on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good, and it is a hot one out there. I made the mistake, Ooh. Brian, of trying to run, trying being the operative word, because I'm sure I looked pathetic. I, it was not a um, not a majestic couple of miles for the old the old Simpkins there. That was... <laughs> I went out and finally met somebody uh, from our church. I was like, oh, you want to meet for lunch? And we ate outside, uh, and I sweat just eating outside. So I'm going with <laughs> running was a bad move. <laughs> nothing, nothing quite like trying to meet with somebody and having like the sweat burn your Ooh. eyes. And you're like, are yeah. we almost done with this conversation? Yeah, uh, yeah. we can be done. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you a couple of things real briefly. We have a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We have a podcast, The Common Good Radio Show podcast. You can get it wherever you get podcasts, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. That does help us out a whole lot. Brian, have we gotten any more reviews since we started outright pleading for them or is that do we know the answer to that question as of yesterday is no which is making (laughs) me feel both sad and self-conscious so there you go (laughs) well this will make for a good radio show today then uh also twitter and instagram at common good talk and a topic that we really can't get around or apparently talk about enough is uh masks we were talking a lot about fauci yesterday and covid and this out of Gospel Coalition, and I think that it's interesting that it comes from that source for a couple of reasons that maybe we'll get into later. But the uh, the headline reads, Four Reasons to Wear a Mask Even If You Hate It. So I chose this article for a couple of reasons. One, I think the topic is pertinent. Two, I know that Brian Fromm loves lists. So this is, <laughs> yes. this is, this is really kind of hitting, uh, hitting both sides. But I like how he begins it. Uh, he says, I don't like wearing face masks. They fog up my sunglasses and they make my beard itch. It's hard to talk intelligibly through them and nearly impossible to pick up nonverbal facial expressions that add vital texture to conversation. I have a growing collection of masks, but none of them fits great. I don't know where to store them. And even the most stylish ones are still pretty awkward. Masks also make it impossible to forget the depressing reality that COVID-19 is still around. They're an ever-present reminder that the world we knew in February is long gone. I also hate that the mask has become such a divisive political symbol with the masked and the masked knots assuming the worst about each other, that mask wearers are fearful, cosmopolitan elites, or that mask avoiders are science-hating MAGA bumpkins who prefer their freedom over grandma's life. It's silly that it's come to this, politicizing masks, but I'm not surprised. 
Everything in our world today is politicized. Ice cream, razors, Harry Potter. He links to stories for all of those, by the way. So, of course, protective face masks would be politicized, especially when the president himself makes masks political. I understand, however, why we so quickly politicize things like masks faced with an avalanche of information, too much to ever sufficiently wade through, conflicting voices of, quote, expertise, and no shortage of inconsistency and hypocrisy from governmental leaders. We default deciding with whatever partisan camp we're already in. I suspect rising tribalism across the world has a lot to do with the mental exhaustion of living in a time of information gluttony where it's easier to just fall in line with one group or the other. For most of us, independent, nuanced appraisal of a litany of complex issues is unrealistic for our already taxed brains. For Christians, though, it's important to rise above the political partisanship and think through what our faith would call us to with regards to wearing or not wearing masks. What if our view on masks we're shaped more by our Christian identity than our American political identity. As much as I dislike wearing masks, sympathize with some skepticism about them, and cringe at attempts to shame people into wearing them, my Christian faith leads me to wear one when I'm indoor public places. When I look at scripture, I don't see a mandate about masks, of course, but I see an invitation to do at least four things. And Brian, I'll go ahead and let you take number one. Yeah, and I really think he did a good job setting that up. And by the way, yeah. some background to the mask conversation. I was just watching CNN just before we came on, and there was uh, President Trump gave an interview on Fox Business, I believe, this morning, uh, in which the interviewer asked him about masks, and he goes, he just said, "Yeah, I think they're good. I'll probably be wearing them as well." And so huh. we, we shall see. There you go. Uh, we shall see. Number one, to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. I'm frustrated. He writes that the science on masks during COVID nineteen has been inconsistent. It's maddening that everyone from the U.S. Surgeon General to the CDC to the World Health Organization have flip-flopped on their mask guidance, but it's not surprising. This is a brand new virus and a fast-moving crisis. We probably won't know for years what was right and wrong in our efforts to stop COVID-19, but consensus is emerging that wearing masks does slow the virus's spread and thus can save lives. For Christians called to love our neighbors as ourselves, wearing a mask in public, particularly indoor spaces where social distance cannot be guaranteed, seems like a relatively easy way to practice neighbor love. Even if it's annoying to wear one, and even if you aren't convinced by the science behind it, why not wear one anyway? Given the enduring certain uncertainty about the way COVID-19 spreads, shouldn't we err on the side of more protective measures rather than less for the sake of the neighbor we might, even if it's a slim chance, unknowingly infect? So that's number one, love your neighbor. Does, does that discourage you at all? And I think he's right that we probably won't know for years what was right and wrong in our efforts to stop COVID-19. Is that a little daunting to think about? It is. It is because uh, to be reminded that even the experts aren't, they're not trying to sell us on stuff. They just don't, they, there's no way to really know. So it is, I do find that a little bit discouraging, but it's always a good thing to remember as we hear different things come out. Yeah. So this is, a, again, a list of four reasons to wear masks, even if you hate it. Number two, to respect authorities, Romans 13, one through seven. He writes, it's easy to blame leaders these days, and certainly many are making lots of mistakes, but let's show them grace. COVID-19 is just one of several complex and fast evolving issues authorities everywhere are facing. Instead of rushing to criticize leaders, what if we gave them the benefit of the doubt, honoring and respecting their authority and believing that they are working hard and trying their best? Further, it seems clear from Romans 13, among other passage, passages such as Titus 3.1 or 1 Peter 2.13, that Christians ought to respect the human governments to which they are subject, as long as submission to those governments doesn't contradict our submission to the Lordship of Christ and his ultimate authority, which I would add is a great 
distinction. It's a great caveat. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to mask wearing for Christians, then if your city or state is mandating masks in certain circumstances right now, as mine is, shouldn't you obey those directives? Likewise, if your church has instituted a quote mandatory mask policy for physical gatherings, go ahead and wear the mask happily. Embrace mm-hmm. the opportunity to practice Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Number three to honor the weak in our midst. Mask wearing has sadly become divisive in churches where masks are not mandatory. Some churchgoers will wear them, some won't. Predictably, the groups will start assuming the worst about each other, that mask avoiders are reckless and see themselves as stronger and braver, and that mask wearers are cowardly and fear-stricken, needing a nudge in the direction of risk. Uh, In Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, Paul argues that in matters of freedom, it's important that stronger Christians don't flaunt their freedom in ways that become stumbling blocks to the weak. Hmm. When a mask wearing, quote, weaker brother enters a church gathering full of mask free, quote, stronger brothers, the mask wearer naturally feels pressure to remove it. But that's exactly the sort of wounding of the weak conscience that Paul says is a sin against Christ. Man. okay, number four. To use freedom for the sake of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. He writes, American Christians are sometimes prone to understanding freedom in a way more shaped by the U.S. Constitution rather than by the Bible. But it's no knock on the beauty and legitimacy of man-made freedoms to suggest that Scripture sometimes calls us to give up these freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Paul, for example, seems happy to give up his freedom for the sake of loving others in 1 Corinthians 8. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I that I might win more of them. He writes in First Corinthians nine nineteen. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them uh, in this in his blessings. First Corinthians nine twenty two and twenty three. There is such missional power in this posture. Few things are more beautiful to witness than someone giving up their rights and freedoms for the sake of the other. There's a lot at stake for Christian witness during COVID nineteen. Do we want the non-believing world to look at Christians as reckless virus super spreaders who put their own freedoms to gather in person as soon as possible to not wear masks unless absolutely mandated ahead of the health of the larger community? Or do we want them to look at Christians as, quote, servants to all, willing to forego their freedoms out of Christ-like neighbor love? If the small annoyance of wearing masks can help not only save lives, but also souls winning more to the gospel, isn't it worth it. That comes from Brett McCracken, who is the senior editor, actually, at the Gospel Coalition and author of a whole bunch of really wonderful books. Brian, I know they're all out of time, but uh, any one of those particularly stand out to you? All of them. I think he did a fabulous job. I, I'm more and more convinced, as we've said the last couple of days, as I've said about wearing a mask, especially indoor. And I think his yeah. reasoning is good that even if you don't believe in them, loving your neighbor, watching out for people who are maybe, quote unquote, weaker, I think is enough for me. Uh, to even try to compel people to wear masks. Yep, totally agree. Coming up next, a, uh, an article that I found really interesting out of Pathios. It says, why did Jesus tell stories? Well, because all good teachers do. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name, in case you were wondering, is Ian Simpkins. His name, in case you were wondering, is Brian Fromm. It's actually Hello. our names, even if you weren't wondering, it's a consistent, <laughs> consistent name across the board, regardless of how you're feeling or thinking. Uh, Brian's going to mention real briefly, though, where you can find out more about the show. Yeah, a lot of great conversation already going on on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. So we'd encourage you to go there either now or, you know, tonight when you're uh, just scrolling through Facebook, head over to The Common Good Radio Show page. You can do the same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. 
online, 1160hope.com. And find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. I said, please, please do that. Share it with a friend. And uh, that really does help us. And it just makes us feel good about the the, uh, podcasters out there. So go ahead and do that. Was that sufficient begging? I think I'm done begging for the day. Yeah, I don't. I didn't ask you to beg. I don't know where that. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable (laughs) with that level of begging. Uh, Yeah, let me tell you real about. Oh, okay. All right. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Thrive It now. Is that okay? Yep. <laughs> yep. Wonderful. Uh, Thrivent.com is where you can start. I'm a Thrive It member. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years and super grateful for them and all they do. But if you're looking for a career change of some kind, you can go to Thrivent.com slash careers and peruse some of the options there. You don't have to have a background in finance at all. Plus, and they've been doing a great job of this, they've been providing all sorts of free resources and webinars, and we're sharing all of that on our Facebook page, but it wouldn't hurt to just go like their Facebook page, and uh, we're super grateful for them and all they do. This this is one that is maybe a little closer to our hearts, Brian, being pastors yeah. and preachers, but I think it's actually interesting for all of us. The headline simply reads, why did Jesus tell stories? Because all good teachers do. What, what's going on here? Yes, yeah, by Vance Morgan at Pathos, and he writes, "Man is in." Uh, he quotes Alasdair MacIntyre in After Virtue as saying, "Man is in his actions and practices, as well as in his fictions, essentially a storytelling animal." And then Vance goes on to write, "One of the things I appreciated as a Baptist kid was that, according to the gospel accounts, Jesus was a great storyteller. Sure, he also could give sermons or speeches and pontificate at length, especially in John's gospel." <laughs> but for me then, as well as now, his most effective communication was through his parables. These short stories, populated with people, animals, and daily occurrences thoroughly familiar to his audiences, should serve as a uh, pedagog- pedag- how do you say that word again? Pe- pedagogical. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Nailed it. Uh, model for all current and aspiring teachers. The teaching and learning dynamic is most effectively energized by story. So I'll stop after that. Uh, first paragraph there. You're somebody uh, who teaches a ton. Uh, and and I've watched you teach on enough occasions to know that you are good and, and like to tell stories. So my guess is that you agree with his premise here. I do, but it, it is an interesting one because I think even, and again, everyone has uh, a slightly different breakdown in terms of the percentages, but a good portion of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is story-driven and I think often the ratio of stories in modern day sermons almost tends to be the opposite. So let, I mean, let's just say, I don't know, let's say 60% of the Bible is narrative or story of some, of some kind. There's no way that the vast majority or even the average of most sermons in the United States are more than half story driven. It would almost feel to a lot of our sensibilities like, oh, just get to the point or the takeaway or the acronym or right. the action items or the, what am I supposed to do? Which are all, these are all really good questions, but yeah, I've, I've always sort of felt this tension too. And I remember the, the first or second time I was invited to speak at my alma mater Judson university, which was an incredible honor because I like almost didn't graduate. So to be invited back <laughs> to speak in chapel was, was such a privilege and such an honor. But I remember uh, somebody there who had been a faculty for a long, long, long time, I found out through the grapevine said some, some kind of comment, like nice kid, but tells way too many stories. And I was Oof. like, Oh man, it like, 
if I felt like the wind got knocked out of me and I, you know, I've grown a lot since then, but I think stories are really, really important. I think they're significant in both just interpersonal communication, but in particular in teaching and preaching. And I, I'd love to know, like, why do you think it's so rare or, or maybe not as prevalent as, as maybe it was in the life and ministry of Jesus? Yeah. You know, when you were just telling that story about Judson, it, it made me think that like I used to be a youth pastor like you. And when I right. would teach junior hires and high schoolers, uh, I was really story driven, like right. a lot of story. And there's something about now being the the upfront teacher of adults, right? Primarily where it does feel like you've got to be more, uh, there's this internal pressure to be more informational or more uh, theolo- not theological, but like, uh, uh, like you're more like just nuancing and taking apart the text and talking about the Greek. Whereas we know even adults, uh, story is what sticks and drives it. And so when you ask why, I do think, you know, kind of our culture is driven by um, not just by facts, but like that's how we learn in school, right? In school, it is like, here's the information. Let me give it to you. Uh, I'm a professor who has more knowledge than you. Let me impart your knowledge. And I think sometimes we either intentionally or unintentionally take that posture into the pulpit. I've been studying this this week or the last couple of weeks. Let me impart my knowledge upon you to transform your life as opposed to how is this message really going to stick? Which if we ask that question, uh, it's probably better done by story. I think that's probably why we, we go about it that way. I think that's a good observation. It is sometimes interesting how uh, and who there's a Dan White Jr. talks a lot about this in in his work with regards to most sermonizing, at least in our context, is a monologue. Right. It And it's almost yeah. parasocial and it's sort of like take notes, fill in the blanks. We haven't uh, shifted all that much in a digital reality. Are you preaching shorter sermons, by the way? Am I right now, like with the pandemic? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, here's a really funny story. Uh, really <laughs> perfect. Right now, uh, right now we are preaching. I'm I'm taping our online stuff that's still going on Sunday morning, and we're doing a service in the parking lot. So they're two different things. Hmm. And uh, my parking lot one, because I could tell people were hot and stuff, I cut it on the fly by like seven minutes just as I went. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Yep, just because you could see, but yeah, uh, I am preaching shorter because of the medium for sure. Well, I like I like this paragraph here. It says, "Telling a story is a creative activity. Telling one story is perhaps the most important creative activity a human being ever encounters." As McIntyre tells us, it is through paying attention to the narrative structure of human reality that we begin to fashion the disparate, fragmented aspects of our own existence into a unified, morally responsible whole. That's so mm. rich. There's so much there, but. I'll I'll just sort of end with this question, Brian. What what would you, if you had to, in thirty seconds, what case would you make for preachers, teachers, communicators of any kind about the significance of story? Uh, I would say this. I would say think back through your life as to the sermons or the TED talks or to whatever that had the most impact that you still remember to this day, and I'll bet you. Mm. There was a powerful story in the midst of it. I can think of some in my own life. One you and I have discussed about Tony Evans before, where he told the most compelling story to end his thing. And I remember being so deeply moved. So my guess is preacher, teacher out there. Think about the preachers and teachers who have most impacted you. And my guess is the vast majority of them have done story really well. I think you're probably right. And it is interesting how how often we can know those things 
and yep. and still struggle to actually make adjustments in our our own communication, right? Like, and it's again, it's a trope, it's a meme, but the uh, the adage about people will probably forget what you say, but they won't forget how you made them feel. I think yeah. storytelling is definitely a part of that, and I feel incredibly grateful because, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's in my blood. Like my family is just a family of storytellers, and I've been just super super grateful for them and yeah. their influence. Coming up next, we're going to do something. I don't know that we've done this in quite some time. No article. There's no author. It's just an image I found. It's a side-by-side comparison of debate and dialogue. And Brian Fromm and I are going to debate it. No, we'll dialogue about it. That's coming up next <laughs> on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I should introduce us in reverse just one of these times. Just to break out of the force of habit, just to give give people something fresh. Mm. It is hard to do. I Every time I start the show, I do it in the identical way, and then I think I should do it differently, and then we come back and I do it the same identical way. <laughs> you do. You are you are sort of a um, you're, you're creature committed, of habit. You're committed yeah. to that consistency, that's for sure. It is tricky. Even right now, I'm panicked a little bit about what I'm going to say next because this is out of the ordinary. So <laughs> let's see what happens next. Okay, Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Not only... Can you send us a message there? We post all of our articles there. There's some debate and dialogue. <laughs> that's actually what we're talking about right now. That's great. Mm-hmm. So all of that's happening there. We, we actually really encourage that. That's a helpful way, I think, for us to kind of grow together as a community. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good, and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you would not mind, Brian Fromm <laughs> gave you his best begging uh, I did. subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does really help us out. And if you want to go even one step further, just share it. Just send it to a friend, and uh, all of that is really meaningful. And we're really, really grateful for those of you who have done that. This is a uh, an image I saw on the interwebs, and it does it has not cited a source, which is probably already problematic. But it just, <laughs> it just has two columns. The first column is debate, and the second column is dialogue. I don't totally know how I want to do this. Maybe maybe I'll just read a line and then have you respond, and then you read a line, and then I'll respond. How does that sound? It sounds good. I would make the point in the beginning, maybe you don't agree with this, that this is not like one is better, one is good, and one is bad. I think there's time for debate and there's time for dialogue, but unfortunately, totally. we get those wrong often. And when, when there should be dialogue, we debate, and that doesn't help, and vice versa. So I think this is helpful also as kind of a window into what's the best thing to use in this situation online or in person or whatever. So yeah, debate versus dialogue. I think this is really good. Okay. So uh, first column is debate. Second is dialogue under debate. It says assumes there is one right answer and you have it. Dialogue assumes others have pieces of an answer and you can craft a solution together. What do you think? I, you can picture that, right? Like we, we all have debated before, whether in school or you can think of like, you know, those video clips of Ravi Zacharias and the atheist going at it back and forth. Like those are set up as a debate. And uh, man, that's that's Facebook a lot of times or that's social media, whereas dialogue allows you to have a conversation, go back and forth. And it, and it takes a humility to say, maybe I don't have all the right answers. And so right off the bat, that really sets up the difference, I believe, in the assumptions between a debate and a dialogue. Yeah. Why don't you give us the second one? Style, a debate style is combative, attempting to prove the other side wrong. A dialogue style is a a collaborative, seeks to find common understanding. What do you think of that? Yeah. So, again, like you mentioned, sometimes there 
there needs to be a debate approach. It's sort of, I've used this example before too. I think it's often how we think about uh, calories in America. We're like, I'm cutting out all calories. You're like, don't cut out all calories. Your body needs calories to survive. I'm not saying we need to cut out all debate that there isn't ever simply like, you know, one absolute truth in a conversation. But like you were saying, it feels like the pendulum is so far swung to debate yeah. and attack. And some of that's by design. I think on social media, we're just not able to pick up on body language. There's no nuance. It's not really set up for dialogue. So in a lot of ways right now, we're caught in a pretty unique space. But I, I do love most of the time the style of collaboration, seeking common understanding. Yeah. I will say that collaboration even can sting when your idea doesn't make the cut if you're working on a team in some capacity. So there, there's other things, I think, to consider. But again, between the two, uh, I appreciate the distinction. Uh, the third one here is, so under debate, it says listens to find flaws and counter-argue. And under dialogue, listens to understand. This one, I think, is really important because when it comes to listening, I'm actually working on a message right now about listening, not for this weekend, but next weekend. Um, the idea to listen, even if it's not to find flaws, but so often without even realizing we're doing it, we listen to respond to not listen to understand. Yeah. And I think that's why so often we just miss each other because while you're talking, even though it might not be heated, all I'm thinking about is my response or rebuttal or how I can pick it apart. And if we actually listen to understand, which requires, I think, a ratcheting back of our ego, I, I think we would see a whole lot more progress and health in our conversations. What, what do you think of that one? I think this might be the most important one. I think, uh, and, and we all know that feeling of where you're uh, having a conversation with someone or maybe a disagreement. And like you just said, you're listening, uh, but the entire time you're formulating how you're going to respond in, and critique and try to tear that their argument down right. as opposed to like that dialogue one. I'm going to listen and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about what they're saying right now. Uh, and then maybe disagree, but listening with the intent of actually listening to what they say, I think is, I think this might be the most important one. And one that when you talk about the pendulum swinging, I, I really feel it in this one. The next one is critiques, a debate critiques only the other position, hmm. a dialogue critiques all views, including your own. I, that seems like another important one right there. Yeah. And also so hard to do. We talked about this, like in political discourse, how, you know, to in any way share an affirmative opinion about your person or your camp assumes that you hate the other camp or to in any way offer a critique of the other camp assumes that you're like madly in love with your camp. Right. And I think that, that those are unfortunate um, conclusions that we often draw about each other, right? So not just critique and point fingers, you know, at the other position, maybe not point fingers at all, but to you. I mean, can you think of a conversation where someone was willing to critique their own view, like how disarming that was? Like, oh, yeah. so we actually both agree that this part of maybe your camp's perspective, we neither of us like that. Okay, that's sort of unifying. Like, I've always felt closer to someone when they're able to critique their own opinion or their own perspective. And I just I find that really helpful. Um, yeah, this just got me thinking about the word debate. Could you imagine? And this is so far from where we are as a culture right now. But could you imagine as we're getting closer to an election, if you heard about a presidential dialogue that was going to take place with the oh, two candidates man. instead of Gosh. a debate? It, you can't even fathom it. But I think when you put it into those contexts, you realize how different these are. Yeah. Sign me up, man. OK, so under debate, uh, debate defends your own views at all costs and dialogue allows others thinking to approve your own. That, again, assumes a certain perspective, right? Like. 
I'm going into this discussion not to prove that you're wrong or that this article was awful or this author's intent was terrible, but to to allow yourself like, hey, I want I want to grow in this conversation too. So mm, I don't have to actually if you if you reveal something about my perspective that's faulty, mm-hmm. I welcome that because I'd like to leave every conversation having grown a little bit, you know. Yep. And the next one says debate encourages search for differences. Dialogue encourages search for basic agreement. Man, what a big one that is to go, hey, we're having this conversation and we're going to start by saying there's going to be places we agree and we're going to build upon that as opposed to debate goes. Let me find the cracks in your argument that I most disagree with and tear apart at it. Yeah, right. Uh, Again, just shows the real differences. I think there's two more. Let me. Yeah, let me just read the the last two and then I'll let you respond. Uh, So debate. Creates a winner loser and discourages further conversation. Dialogue creates an open end, leaving the topic open for further discussion. Debate involves no focus on feelings, often actively seeking to belittle or offend, where dialogue involves a real concern for the other, doesn't actively seek to alienate or offend. You got about a minute or so. What do you think? I think culturally, to take these all collectively, I think culturally, uh, the default is to debate. And so what I would encourage people out there, especially the Christ follower, is to say, uh, how am I in my personal interactions, my interpersonal um, one-on-ones or in a group setting? How am I online? Am I this person about the debate who's always trying to tear other people down, not listening, or am I the dialogue? There's certainly times for debate. Uh, but when that's our default way, uh, I'm not sure that that's entirely helpful. I think that is well said, Brian, and a pretty darn good way to wrap up the first half of the show. Coming up next, though, Carlos Whitaker, if you're serious about justice, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. We're going to tackle that article out of Relevant Magazine coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible— but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about hate. We're going to talk about justice. Ed Stetzer weighs in on patriotism. And Ben Carson says that we need to grow up. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Find us all over the World Wide Web on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. On Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good. I always say slash so aggressively, sorry. Also, wherever <laughs> it is, you get your podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review. Not only can you, but you would help us out a whole lot if you would. Also, Alexa is your buddy. If you want to ask Alexa to play The Common Good Radio Show, she will be happy to do so. And uh, before we jump in on all of this that I want to tackle this hour, 
I haven't yet said it once today, Brian. Would would you like to do us the honors? Uh, because of what day today is, because mm-hmm. I believe it is. I believe it's uh, you know, it's a nice Wednesday. It's just a beautiful day outside. It's a nice one. Oh, it's hump day, hump day. Yes, <laughs> really, it is. I really thought you were gonna maybe grace us with not doing that. I thought, nope. I thought for sure that was a. You opened that door. You opened that we, door, and I was kicking we, that one in. We we call that a pump fake in the biz. <laughs> uh, and I walked right into it. Okay, so Carlos Whitaker, he wrote a new book called uh, Enter Wild. And here's the headline out of relevant. If you're serious about justice, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. What's going on here? Yeah, Carlos Whitaker, it says in this article, has spent uh, the last few years trying to get Christians to join him in the deep end of the pool. By his read, far too many Christians are playing it too safe, living for maximum comfort and striving to keep their lives as safe, orderly, and unremarkable as possible. He's always demanded more from his own faith, and he wants others to live that way, too. His latest book is called Enter Wild, and it addresses the need more directly than anything he's ever written before. So he sits down in this interview with Relevant to talk about how he, as a person of color, feels like the book specifically addresses the current Black Lives Matter protests and what it might look like for people who really want to live a wild faith. This conversation, it says, then has been lightly edited. Uh, I'm curious, uh, again, the premise of far too many Christians are playing it too safe, living for maximum comfort and striving to keep their lives as safe, orderly and unremarkable as possible. Do you feel like that is an accurate representation? I mean, I feel like this is more of like a geography specific thing, as we've mentioned numerous times on the show, what it means to be a Christian here, as opposed to numerous other places and countries and cities across the globe looks pretty vastly different. So I always hesitate to say, you know, Christians in general struggle with this or are caught up in that. It is sometimes strange to really reconcile that, that, oh man, our experience as Christ followers here for a lot of people in other parts of the world wouldn't even be familiar. Like, wait, what? This is what you, this is what Sunday looks like for you. This is what a church is and vice versa, by the way. So yeah, I do think that there's always, there's always going to be a temptation to stay on the sidelines or to play it safe. And I, I think that goes for people young and old people, traditional progressive for people, regardless of their denomination. Yeah. I do kind of think that this is something in general that is worth talking about. And it certainly, it's a book landing at an interesting time. In fact, that's the first question. He says, your book is landing at a really interesting time. There's a realization that Christians are thinking, okay, we need to do something. We do want to get off the sidelines, but then this paralysis sets in. We don't know how to get involved. He says, I think that the whole call for moving from a mild and mundane faith to a more of an experiential wild faith is not just going to happen if you're just sitting on your phone hashtagging Blackout Tuesdays. That's actually not the wildlife that Jesus is calling us to. So boring, so lame. It's not what we've been called to. So I feel like the book is a very provocative shout to people that have been really comfortable in what they've been doing. Maybe going on to church on Sunday, small group on Thursday, and that's what their faith has been, as opposed to, oh no, actually what Jesus is calling us to do is to get wild and be the hands and feet in the face of injustice. So many people have been coming to me going, Carlos, we're so disappointed that you're not preaching the gospel anymore. You're being political and you're trying to play the race game. And I'm saying, wait a second, the gospel is being the hands and feet. The gospel is doing things. So the book is a call out to Christians to say, hey, listen, it's time to get off the sidelines. But what do you think of his answer there? Yeah, he certainly um, 
It's just interesting, man. Think about this is the second time we've hearkened back to being in youth ministry. How many times did you teach in youth ministry some form of the phrase, get out of your comfort zone, right? Like this was oh, our yeah. constant thing to students. It was this call to something bigger, something, um, for, for lack of a better word, riskier or uh, not to get comfortable. And, and I, I'm not sure that we necessarily preach that in, you know, adult big church, you know, like, hey, uh, push the limits. And so Carlos is certainly trying to push the envelope. I, he strikes me as like a pretty type A, like, let's get going. Um, but I think it's a challenging call. He He's not wrong to be like, hey, the gospel calls us. Jesus has called us kind of, you know, into the fight, into to step in where there's injustice, where people are being marginalized, where people are being hurt. Uh, and that nowhere in the Gospels are we called to kind of sit on the sidelines and just do our individualistic things and go about our day. And, um, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see if this book resonates with people because you read books like this a lot. Um, but especially, like you said, landing in this time where people are going, man, I do feel like there's something going on culturally where we need to step in and speak and be the hands and feet of Jesus. I think his call is uh, is certainly a challenging one. Yeah, it's a much longer interview. We've posted it on the Facebook page. But the next question was one that I wanted to ask you about, Brian. He says, how do you address this is being uh, he's being interviewed by Tyler Huckabee. He says, how do you address the critique that you're getting too political? It does seem like anytime Christians get away from really basic intro to biblical worldview type topics, they get accused of being politically correct cultural Marxists. He says, I'll tell you where I think it comes from. I think it comes from people being uncomfortable facing the biases in their own lives. I think it comes from Christians that are uncomfortable with looking at the lack of response that they're given to a certain subject matter, judging themselves and looking in the mirror. I think that's uh, why they get so uncomfortable. Suddenly, Christians start needing to do more than what a certain Bible verse says, right? There's no Bible verse that says, go to Target, get a poster board, write Black Lives Matter on it and go downtown uh, into the market. There's not a scripture that says that. So for people that are uncomfortable with that, They'll tell me, well, that's not gospel centric. That's not what Jesus commands us to do. But I think it's a call to become uncomfortable with your faith. And gosh, I tell you what, I grew up half in East LA and half in the South. The South, man, people love to be comfortable in their faith. They love just to have a nice, cozy faith that fits their life scheme. And here I am saying, no, actually, that's not what we're called to do. We've got to get uncomfortable. What do you, what do you think of that response? I mean, it's super challenging, isn't it? I, as a preacher, but also just as a Christ follower, I tend to shy away from political hot button topics. And um, I've always thought that that was the wise move. And maybe it is the wise move from the pulpit. Like, you you know, you got to pick and choose your battles. But um, I also think that there is some sense of not wanting to rock the boat, a little bit of fear, a little bit of uncomfortability. And I think that's what he's talking to us about, Christians on you know, um, stand up for uh, the things Jesus has called us to stand up for and stand up for the people he has called us to stand up for and and be willing to ruffle some feathers. And so I've never heard Carlos Whitaker speak. I don't know him. My guess is he's a pretty intense guy <laughs> from reading this. Yeah. And, uh, I, and so therefore, I, I just think this is probably a challenging book. Like that statement about how we shy away from the political, the the things that aren't maybe very popular. I feel that in my own life. I certainly get that. You you use the phrase uh, "choose your battles" a lot. How do you actually do that as a as a preacher and a pastor to choose which battles, which hot button things you actually do choose to address from the pulpit, for example? Yeah, for me, it's always been what comes in the text that I'm preaching or in the series that we're doing. Well, what I've never done, to be honest with you, is just a series on 
you know, X, Y, and Z that are kind of the cultural hop, uh, uh, hop, uh, points at the moment or things that, uh, and so I'll touch on things like racism or other things as they come up in the text. You know, you're talking about the Imago Day or something like that, but I've never gone the other direction. Like we're going to preach on racism today or we're going mm. to preach on politics today. Mm. Um, and so for me, I was always trained, you know, as you're going through a book or as you're going through a series and it comes up, don't shy away from it. Uh, but there's another step or another way to go about that that I've never necessarily done. So I, I would say to answer your question, I've always picked my battles preaching by just kind of what's in the text in front of me in the series that we're doing, hmm. uh, as opposed to, no, I need to speak about this right now. Huh, that's interesting. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll dedicate a whole segment to that sometimes. I think that's interesting and maybe something people would want to know a little bit more about. But coming up yep. next from David French and the best website name that I've ever found, the French press, the headline says, I'm not hateful. You are. That's coming up next here on The Common Good <laughs> on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Stillian Simpkins. His name is Brian Fromm. And uh, man, been getting the phone is ringing off the hook for ways to find us online. So I'm finally answering the call. Here's how you can do that: Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. They're not really our articles, I guess. It's where we just post articles in general. You can also send us messages. You can weigh in on those articles. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. All of that does help us out so much. The light's gone out. Brian, can you hear it in my voice? I'm just like, you can subscribe, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It felt, it felt defeated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Defeated and deflated, man. That's, that's the name of the game today. Speaking of which, from David French, who uh, we were talking during the break, is not David Fitch, but nope. We like them both. So uh, from the French press, he wrote, this is a pretty long article. I'm not hateful. You are. Judge me. You don't even know me. <laughs> what What is going on here? Yeah, let's just read the beginning of it. He says, one of the first and most elementary things a young Christian learns in Sunday school is the idea that God com- God's commands are good for you. The violation of a moral command activates a set of consequences. On the individual level, this is not a controversial thought. Think of the Ten Commandments. Uh Extending beyond the basic requirements of the Decalogue, the Bible is full of if-then propositions that describe the terrible consequences of sin and the benefits of obedience. There are so many, in fact, that it's one explanation for the persistence of legalism or the prevalence of problematic theologies like the prosperity gospel. Seeking certainty in an uncertain world, Christians latch onto these propositions as if the promised rewards for righteousness are typically immediate, literal, and material. In fact, there are times when we don't live to see the benefits of obedience by, quote, taking up our cross. Christians can, in fact, die unjust deaths and suffer horrible persecution. Hmm. I'd urge you to reread Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame faith, to understand how obedience can lead to both earthly triumph uh, and terrible tribulation. He goes on to say, uh, count me in the category of people who'd rather put foreign armies to flight than to be sawn in two, but that's not for me to decide. He goes, I digress. The point of this newsletter isn't to decipher all of God's promises, but rather to note two things at once. First, sin has consequences. Second, sometimes you can see those consequ- consequences play out in real time. Uh, let's move to Matthew 7, 1. One of the most quoted and least understood verses in the entire Bible. Virtually every American even the most biblically illiterate can quote the first two words, judge not. It's turned into a cultural imperative repeated in songs, talk shows, gifts, and memes. Don't judge me. 
Why do I say the verse is the least understood? Well, for one thing, we have to define judging. If I say to a Christian friend who's having an affair with a colleague that his affair is wrong, I'm not judging. I'm simply using basic reading comprehension. God has issued his judgment on adultery, not me. It's right there in the text. Mm. The larger context provides an if-then construct that is a clear warning of the consequences of uncharitable assessment of others, especially when our own sins are grievous. Here it is. Judge not that you not be judged, uh, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The moral command is followed immediately by the consequences. You'll be judged by the same standard you judge others. Give no grace, receive no grace. We're extremely familiar with the individual application of this concept. How often do people respond not with sorrow, but with a peculiar sense of satisfaction uh, and then say a judgmental pastor is caught literally with his pants down? or when a vicious public personality is revealed to be crook, a crook or a fraud. Let me take a break and pause there, take a breath and say, uh, this is the big one, isn't it? In our culture, yeah. especially thrown out towards Christians, do not judge, do not judge, do not judge. And as he says, um, this is really misunderstood by most of us. Yeah, and it, it feels like it's it's less like do not judge as a commander imperative, but more like don't judge me, right? Like, I, hey, I don't know who you are. Uh, take the speck out of, or the log out of your own eye. Or we'll do it to sort of uh, defend someone that's maybe getting dismantled in the news, rightfully or wrongfully. And it is, it is one of those things that I find interesting, and he touches on this. It's so recognizable, even if you've never cracked open a Bible, like people know it. And I, I think... That's an interesting reason why we gravitate towards things like that. But then he goes on to say, let's move beyond the individual. Do the first verses of Matthew 7 describe a reality that isn't just personal, but also cultural and political? Can a nation suffer the consequences of mass scale intolerance? He says, Mm -hmm. I think, yes, I think we're living in it right now. And no, I don't think it's confined to the extremes of cancel culture, but rather to the way in which ordinary everyday Americans are increasingly judging their political opponents. On Thursday, the good folks at Beyond Conflict released a study called America's Divided Mind. And while I'm not sure they had Matthew 7 in mind when they looked at the results, they provided strong evidence of the spiritual consequences of unjust judgment. By the measure we judge others, so shall we be judged. Its results show why we're in the grips of toxic polarization and a nonstop state of political emergency. Across the great American political divide, Two warring tribes have made an identical judgment about the other. Quote, I'm not hateful. You are. Or to put it even more precisely, I may not hate you, but you hate me. I I find that. And again, there's a whole lot more to this article. French tends to write pretty long articles. What do you what do you think so far just of that kind of premise of the state of our nation right now? Uh, I, I think it's right on. I I think it was you who told me this. At least I attributed it to you when I told someone this. Was it you and I having the discussion about how the far right and the far left aren't poles on the line, but it's more like the ends of a horseshoe? Was that you? Yeah, yeah right, right. Good. Well, I used that today and I told someone it came from you. And I think that has really helped me go, man, uh, that that we're not polar. Like, like this is the this is the problem. This toxic polarization and this political emergency, as he says, that this political divide, these warring tribes is at the extremes of both. They're, they act the same way. I'm not hateful. Mm-hmm. You are. I don't hate you. You hate me. When really, 
uh, they hate each other. I think that he has kind of lined this up really well. Uh, he says, here's a summary of the findings. Large majorities of both Democrats and Republicans substantially exaggerate the extent to which members of the other party dehumanize, dislike and disagree mm-hmm. with them, creating a significant dis, uh, perception uh, divide between perception and reality. The more we feel disliked and dehumanized, he says, by members of the other party, the more likely we are to express greater dislike and dehumanization toward them. Hmm. In this way, the divide between actual and perceived dislike and dehumanization can create a downward spiral of hostility that fuels further toxic polarization. And I would add on to that parenthetically, it also puts a lot of money into the pockets of people who run cable news (laughs) because that's how cable news runs right there. That is a great description of our media right there. And we feel that every day you dehumanize me, I dehumanize you. And that gives us license to say terrible things about one another. Well, and it's interesting too, because it gets into some of the specifics of this uh, particular study, uh, guessing how warm the other side felt toward the other. And those numbers were pretty interesting. It says um, Republicans give Democrats a score of approximately 34 out of, out of 100, while Democrats give Republicans a score of 28 out of 100. Both sides, quote, feel that the other side dislikes them nearly twice as much as they actually do. So true. That alone. And then it kind of gets into some specifics about immigration and gun control. And it's really the actuality versus the um, the perceived perspectives. And we talked about this as another group called More in Common found the exact same thing. I think we we did a story on that nine months ago, 10 months ago. I would say it's probably intensified since then, which is super humbling yes. to find, man, the people that you're convinced hate you probably don't hate you nearly as much as you think they do. And that has implications for how we live, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think this is really good. It goes back also, things seem to connect to the conversation we had earlier about dialogue and debate. You're going to debate and try to tear down someone that you've dehumanized. Uh, And he, at the end of his article, he said, I've said this before, human beings need forgiveness like we need oxygen. An intolerant nation is a miserable and divided nation. Only grace can light the trail out of the darkness. And if we as Christ followers of all people should be modeling this. So I do think we should be challenged by what David French wrote here. Yeah, totally agree. Well, coming up next, and this is maybe connected in some way, shape or form. Ben Carson said America needs to grow up and stop being offended by everything. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone welcome back to the common good on this is it fair to call it steamy is that oh it's fair oh my word what are we what are we doing i told you earlier i made the mistake of going running and uh you know that look when someone going the other direction they give you and they just it's more like should i call an ambulance like are you gonna be okay out here little fella like i got a couple (laughs) of of those glances like why don't you sit down? Why don't, why don't you, why don't you calm down a little bit there? Not my, uh, not my proudest moment. There's a couple of things I'd love to tell you about our social media, but instead I'm going to let Brian tell you. Yep. Find us on Facebook at the common good radio show. That's the common good radio show. If you're new to the show, that's where we post articles, interviews, uh, that we have done on the show. Also some articles and other things that we don't even talk about on the show. And then we invite our listeners there at the Facebook page to discuss and uh, dialogue off of our earlier uh, conversation we had. And uh, you can also do that on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows. And also we have a podcast. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And as we always say, we are grateful for all of you who do listen to the podcast. 
And also, super briefly, Thrivent, big fans of Thrivent. You can learn more at Thrivent.com or you can like their Facebook page. I'm a Thrivent member, have been for like seven or eight years. They're a Fortune 500 non for profit. It's been around for more than 100 years. And they just like helping people be wise with money, which is a big deal. But they also come at it from a Christian perspective, which is super unique and super hard to find, which is why I've been a member for as long as I have. But Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to check out. If you're looking, even considering some kind of career change, what what would be the harm to take a look at Thrivent.com slash careers? You don't have to have any kind of background in finance whatsoever. You just got to like helping people come alongside people. Plus, we've been sharing a bunch of their stuff. They're free content on our Facebook page, and they got webinars and resources and uh, just really, really grateful for them and all that they're doing. I mentioned it earlier. So Ben Carson said, America needs to grow up and stop being offended by everything. This is an article out of ChristianHeadlines.com. Brian Fromm, what is happening here? Yeah. So Carson, this was a uh, week or two ago, I believe. Uh The secretary of the Department of Housing and and Urban Development made the comments on this week with George Stephanopoulos on ABC. After being asked about President Trump's acceptance speech being scheduled in Jacksonville, Florida on August 27th, the 60th anniversary of a KKK mob attacking mostly black civil rights protesters in that city. Uh, Is it appropriate to be having a convention speech on that anniversary in that city? Stephanopoulos asked. Carson answered, we've reached a point in our society where we dissect everything and try to ascribe some nefarious notion to it. We really need to move away from that. We need to move away from being offended by everything, of going through history and looking at everything, of renaming everything. I mean, think about the fact that some of our universities, some of our prestigious universities have a relationship with slave trade. Should we go and rename those universities? He was somewhat prophetic about what's been going on in the last couple of weeks here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really gets to the point of being ridiculous after a while, Carson said. And, you know, we're going to have to grow up as a society. Earlier, Carson said the U.S. can only be destroyed if Americans, quote, destroy ourselves. We have to stop putting everything into the arena of combat. Let's see if we can find a way to work together, because if we don't, we're doomed. Carson also pushed back on criticism of President Trump's suggestion to governors of dominating the streets. Uh, Carson said there are lots of different ways to express things. I believe what's being said there is obviously we cannot submit to anarchy. I think we should all agree with that. We might not all express it in the same way, but we could all agree with it. And we've got to begin to look at the big picture. What is the thing that we're aiming to do? Not what someone said this day uh, or that day. So let me stop there. Um, I have thoughts on what he said, but I would like to get that. Would you like to give your thoughts or would you like my thoughts first? I would like to let you choose. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and go? For, you you sound fired up. Why don't you go first? I'm actually not fired up because I actually agree with him to a point and vehemently okay. disagree with him to a point. Like, I oh, feel like there's a gray area. There. Like, I don't, I don't think he's altogether wrong. Let me put it that way. OK, uh, because I do think uh we are we have a trajectory in our culture of being overly sensitive at times. We've talked about it with some some of the cancel culture stuff. Um where everything's a debate, everything's up for discussion, everything's an offense. And so on some level, I think he's not wrong uh, that when he says we need to move away from being offended by everything. OK, because and that's a little bit of a straw man. But there are some people in some corners where, where there is a lot of offense. But to say that we need to move away from being offended by everything does not mean that we shouldn't be offended by things uh, that we should be offended by nothing. Like if there, if that's the dichotomy we're setting up here, that's a dangerous one because there are certainly things, uh, a lot of things that people 
can and should be offended by that we should be having conversations about. Like he kind of threw out there about the the school names over uh, and statues over slave trade. I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have. And it's legitimate for some people to be offended by, whereas he was kind of dismissive about it. Um, I do agree with him that we tend to pick at every little thing and go, well, they did this because of this and therefore this. And, and sometimes we as a culture have to just take a deep breath. But I think, in my opinion, to say that we shouldn't be offended by everything certainly can't mean we shouldn't be offended by we should be offended by nothing because there's a lot in our culture that we should be offended by. So, again, I think there's nuance here. I think he went too far. Uh, but I do think there is a little bit of merit to what he's saying uh, culturally for us right now. Okay, that's mine. How about you? <laughs> you just sort of sort of said neither, both both and neither is what you said. <laughs> okay, I went nuanced. <laughs> yeah, right. you're like I don't agree, but I don't disagree. That's my that's the Brian Fromm take. <laughs> um, I do think this would be interesting. Maybe we could get him on the show sometime. So Brant Hansen wrote a book called unoffendable how just one change can make all of life better here's what's in the description of the amazon page it turns out giving up your quote right to be offended can be one of the most freeing healthy simplifying relaxing refreshing stress relieving encouraging things you can do it's a radical provocative idea we're not entitled to get offended or stay angry the idea of our own righteous anger is a myth it is the number one Mm. problem in our societies today and as dallas willard says christians have not been taught out of it so He's made an entire case that you shouldn't actually, as a Christ follower, be offended by anything. Oh, interesting. So part, interesting. Part of what you're saying is like, yeah, there's some things worth being offended by. He makes a case. And again, this wasn't written like today. So I wonder if, you know, books like this will age well. What do you what do you think of, of that premise? Yeah, I mean, it's the first I've heard of it. Have, have you read the book by I any chance or no? Nope. Like, what do you think he means by you shouldn't be offended at all? Because that seems like a hard way to live. But maybe I'm just missing his point. Like, it seems like there's always going to be things that are offensive. Um, So does he is he differentiating being offended versus taking offense? I don't know. What do you think he's trying to say? That's my long winded way of saying I don't know how to answer that because I'm surprised (laughs) that, that he would write that. Yeah, he says in Unoffendable, you'll find things of immeasurable value, a concrete, practical way to live with less stress, adjusting your expectations to fit human nature and replacing perpetual anger with refreshing humility and gratitude. Unoffendable seeks to lift religious burdens from our backs and to allow us to experience the joy of gratitude, perhaps for the first time every single day of their lives. So Hmm. that's about as much as you're going to get from uh, an Amazon preview there. Um, I do think it is a little strange. I will say this. I think part of what's difficult about what Carson says is that if there are some things that are, yes, deeply ingrained into the infrastructure of our country and also deeply wrong, right? for the people that haven't seen it as an issue, this was a lot of how I think the kings responded to the prophets in the Old Testament, right? Where the prophets were often where they saw a travesty, the rest of society saw like a mild inconvenience. You always saw that back and forth. And it was always sort of this like, can't you just calm down Amos or Nahum. You're being a little dramatic. That's right. And I I think sometimes, you know, especially from people in positions of power and authority, it can seem like the other person, like they're just over. Sure. This school was named after someone that owned a bunch of slaves, but it's been that name for a long time. And I think people on the other side are saying, yeah. And that's been a problem for a long time. Like just because it's been around for a long time, doesn't mean we should all go, "Eh, that would cost a lot to rebrand. So never mind. That's part of where I think some of what he says breaks down. I, 
Mm-hmm. Again, it's just it's a short article. There's another book that I remember reading years and years ago. It says uh, it was called No More Christian Nice Guy. The idea was like, you know, we don't we don't have to actually get worked up by as many things as we get worked up on. But it does feel like some of what Carson is saying isn't a big deal for thousands, if not millions of Americans actually is a big deal. So how do we maybe employ what we were talking about earlier in the show? And Mm -hmm. rather than debate, have a little more dialogue. I think we could all probably benefit from that. Just a little bit, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, coming up next, a part one and a part two just came out today that we're not going to get to from Ed Stetzer. Patriotism in the church. Is it too much to ask churches to be careful? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of peaked with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality it was just their heart to give back to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously to be wise with money and live generously and that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them and so if you're interested in learning more I can't encourage you enough to head to thrivent.com today Hey friends, welcome back to the final segment of the day. If you're listening via the podcast, you're probably like, what's a segment via the radio? <laughs> we uh, we have commercials and stuff, but I know via the podcast, this is all sort of just one cohesive piece, probably with a little bit of an annoyance to the fact that I mentioned the Facebook page and the podcast and the Twitter and the Instagram. You can find all those things and I won't I won't fill you all in right now, but go go ahead and find us subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that helps us out a whole ton. But uh, can we call him friend of the show yet, Brian? Oh, yes. Ed Stetzer, definite friend of the show. Friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, the guy who I can only assume sleeps 30 minutes a night because he does (laughs) so many things. He writes so many different places. He was pastoring 18 churches at a time or something and writing books and editing. And he found time to post this on his own personal page, edstetzer.com. And the headline says patriotism and the church part one. Is it too much to ask churches to be careful? Can you tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, Stetzer, he's coming out in full force here. He says, as Independence Day in the United States is celebrated every year, I see a lot of churches discussing America, God, and the church and how they fit together in the context of worship services. I want to challenge us towards a greater understanding of God's kingdom in times of national celebration. Mm. A few years back, he says, I wrote an article for Influence Magazine on patriotism and the church that offered some statistics on churches and this celebration. In the first of three uh, articles on patriotism and the church, I want to say more about this topic. So here's the stats. Okay. He says a Lifeway research study of a thousand Protestant pastors found that almost 90% of Protestant churches do something in their worship services to celebrate July 4th. Hmm. One statistic in particular highlights a concern about how and why the church is involved to such a large degree. Here it is. This survey found that 53% of Protestant pastors say, 
uh, quote, our congregation sometimes seems to love America more than God. Mm. Now, when I point out the dangers of mixing patriotism and worship, he stats are right. Some people are just deeply offended. Well, I'm deeply offended, too, by this statistic, and you should be as well. When mm. 53% of pastors agree that sometimes their congregations love America more than God, that should be sounding alarm bells. That's why Stetzer says, I'm compelled to write. He says, to be blunt, anything that replaces a love of God is idolatry, and this needs to be addressed. Sometimes a good thing like patriotism can become a bad thing when it means more to a believer than Jesus. Mm. It is our job as pastors to point people to Jesus and highlight idolatry in our lives, in our churches, and in our culture. And our hearts are idol factories, according to Calvin, so we are drawn to them. In the Influence Magazine article, I go on to explain why this statistic actually shouldn't actually surprise us. He says, as recently as 60 years ago, the church was at a, uh, was the community center. The pastor, the representative of the community in the church building was the largest public gathering in a town. And these things made it instrumental in the forming of American culture as we understand it today. America, God, and the church coalesced together in a symbiotic relationship. Mm. America is perceived to be a Christian nation less because of the founding fathers' intentional objectives and more because of the passive role of the local church in shaping the American culture. This is a history that is both nuanced and fascinating to me, he writes. And we are, we go more into the detail in the Influence uh, magazine article. And it is this history that has conflated the worship of God and the worship of America. If your church has a regular habit of celebrating and singing about America and its greatness in the world, the line between God's sovereignty over creation and America's sovereignty as a creation will become blurry. Gotta stop there. Um, there's a lot there. Classic Stetzer, lots of stats, lots of other things. But what jumped out to you there? And do you agree with where he's going with this? Well, the line that stood out to me, he says, uh, more because of the passive role of the local church in shaping American culture. That, to me, I had a youth pastor. He used to say something like, we need to read America through the lens of the Bible, but often we do the opposite. We read the Bible through the lens of America, which, you know, in some capacity is understandable because it's the water that we swim in. It's it is constantly shaping us. It's why I think the message of Jesus is so truly countercultural. And so often I think when the, the church, the big C church, just simply mirrors the culture or maybe even more discouragingly sort of follows the culture, right? Like Christian films, Christian music in, in a lot of ways historically has kind of been behind the curve and playing this sort of catch up, which to me is just not befitting of the kingdom of God in general. Um, I find that to be somewhat concerning. And I realized too, and I, I didn't really plan it this way, but I hope some of our conversations earlier about judging and debate versus dialogue have helped prepare us for this wrap up segment, because I know that for a lot of people, like they're maybe already feeling on edge and their blood pressure is rising. We can't get to this whole article, but I, I would implore you at least read it and share some yeah. thoughts because I think there's, there's just a lot of good, there's a lot of good meat there. And Stetzer is, I think, a very thoughtful person, uh, someone yeah. deeply centered in the ways of Jesus. So he's not saying these things flippantly, but he's also not saying them divisively. He's not looking just to lob grenades and like watch chaos. Like he's he's also a pastor. So I, I think his tone throughout this is actually really helpful. Yeah. And if you follow Stetzer, Ed Stetzer on Twitter or anywhere, he's constantly talking about uh uh, the political process, like he's not one of these guys going, we should be removed. In fact, I love how that he stated earlier in the article, patriotism is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It is when it becomes the best thing, when it takes the place of, um, you know, our higher price, when, when America, when love of country is 
um, above love of God, then you've got yourself a problem. And when the two can't be at odds with each other, right? That's your whole, what's the lens that I look, do I look at the country through the lens of the Bible or the Bible through the lens of the country? Uh, if, if we have to be able to critique what we see as wrong um, in our country based on our faith and not vice versa. He says, I want to encourage us all that we have a calling. He says, we are called to love and serve the king and represent the kingdom of God. That's our primary duty. We can celebrate our country in this world, but our loyalty should be to the kingdom that is not of this world. He says, my friends, no one can top what the Bible says about how we live and view the world. Our earthly citizenship is too fleeting and heaven is too eternal for us to ignore Paul's words in Ephesians. He says, there is one body and one spirit, Ephesians 4 says, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says, we have a new citizenship and a new allegiance. As pastors and leaders, we must call others to that reality, particularly when confusion abounds. It's not that we can't be patriotic. I am, he says. It's that we need to be careful, particularly when the numbers show us a concern. Yes, people can come to different conclusions about how to be patriotic and how that relates to church. And I'm not assigning motives to each and every person or church who does things differently than I prefer. However, can we all agree that we need to do it carefully? Can we at least consider that there might be some dangers, both scripturally and historically, that we might want to consider in light of the statistic above, a statistics above, that seems like a pretty wise course of action. So Stetzer really, I think, writes, I'm looking forward to reading the next two that are going to come out. This was part one. Uh, Ian, I, I, I finished off the article there. I'll leave the last minute or so to you. What do you think about how he closed this out? I like how he closes it out. I think what he says here, actually, a couple paragraphs before it is how I want to end the segment. He says, as followers of Jesus, God has given us a new kingdom and a new allegiance. You are no longer citizens of this world, but of the world to come, the kingdom. His kingdom is worth dying for. His kingdom is worth living for. And his kingdom is the only one that deserves our full allegiance and loyalty. I think in the very least, that should challenge all of us. And again, those are just excerpts. We highly encourage you. Head on over to the Facebook page, read the whole article. Give us your thoughts on anything we talked about today or any of the shows before that. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Brian Fromm. My name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.